Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited about the founder that we have today. I mean, it's incredible, you know, the journey, also what he's doing with his company and the team. I mean, it's remarkable. We're going to be talking quite a bit about SPACs, you know, as well. And there's a lot going on in that segment, you know, a lot of noise, a lot of people talking about it. But I think that today we're going to be filtering through that noise from someone that has done it. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Craig Knight. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here, Alejandro. So originally born and raised there in, in Sydney, correct? So how was, how was life growing up in Sydney? Oh, look, Australia is a great place. Uh, I think especially as a young you know, male in Australia, enjoying the outdoors and sports and nature and all this sort of thing, Australia is a great place. Um, but like a lot of other people that grow up in Australia, you know, it's a small country and we kind of crave contact with the, the outside world or the rest of the world. So a lot of us end up traveling the world and looking for job opportunities and opportunities to explore different parts of the world when you're from a, a small country like Australia. And in your case, Greg, what really fueled that interest around chemistry and mathematics? Because that's what you went to university to study. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say what fuels those interests, right? But I think scientifically minded people just end up you know, in, in certain modes of, of learning and, and acquiring knowledge and pursuing, you know, answers to the, to the questions of, you know, why things are what, the way they are and how things work. Um, so as a scientifically minded person, um, you know, I ended up studying chemistry and maths and, and looking for opportunities uh, for me, took me into the chemical sector. Uh, and then in the chemical sector, I came across some some new energy technologies, and that's how I ended up with exposure to the material side of the fuel cell uh, technology. And we'll talk about that, but you know, one of the things that, that was pivotal was to do the MBA and then going to Singapore. That's right. Well, first and foremost, I mean, after you know, being on the scientific side, why the business side you know, came about, and then also how do you land in Singapore? Yeah, so I uh, decided to do an MBA because I realized after a little bit of time uh, exposed to, to labs in, in the kind of industrial chemistry setting, I realized that I wasn't destined to be a, a lab rat, as they call them, uh, for too many years, but I, I still really liked um, science. So I went and studied an MBA and 
and I used some of those skills uh, getting into you know commercial roles in the industrial chemistry sector, and I ended up in a in a group that was doing technology validation and corporate venture capital, that sort of thing, uh, based in Singapore. And that's where I got exposed to fuel cell technology for the first time. So tell us about, you know, as well, really getting excited there about clean energy, you know, in the late 90s, and then how that evolves, you know, into into landing, you know, on, on horizon fuel cell technologies. Yeah, so we looked at a number of different technologies that related to clean energies and to um, water water um, technologies and some of these kind of things. PEM fuel cell technologies was one of the areas that looked pretty interesting, but the chemical company that we were working in, in a small group that was evaluating this, was called Eastman Chemical, was a, was a spin-out from the old Eastman Kodak. Um, they chose not to invest in the space specifically, uh, but a couple of my colleagues were so interested in the technology, they wanted to quit their day jobs and, and go and take a punt on being entrepreneurs in, in the space. I tried to convince them they were mad for a little while, but in the end, they they uh, they won me over, and I ended up uh, essentially uh, following them a couple of years later. So I helped um, with some of the thinking process and business set up in the beginning, and some investment. And then after a few years, I also joined the business. So uh, here we are, some eighteen odd years later, many battle scars along the way, uh, but here we are, some eighteen years later with plenty of experience on the core fuel cell technology and in the last two years, experience in taking that technology downstream into uh, mobility applications. So in this case, you know, with Horizon Fuel Cell Technologies, I mean, what was like to be for so many years, kind of like in survival mode into a segment that is saying that is not that popular, I would say. You're right about being survival mode. I mean, I sometimes call it growing up on the mean streets because we were trying to sell a technology that nobody was really asking for. So we had to learn how to package fuel cell technology in a way that it became a viable solution to somebody's power problems. So we were competing with diesel generators, we were competing with batteries, we were competing with different battery technologies embedded in UPS systems and this sort of thing. But we found enough uh, use cases that were interesting and also sold a lot into R&D, for example, around the world. We managed to manufacture more than a million air-cooled fuel cells over the years uh, uh, with Horizon, and that, that, that built a certain base of, of experience um, and also material know-how. And then we've used that to apply into more and more complex uh, fuel cell systems and higher and higher powered fuel cell systems to the extent that you know, five or six years ago, the company, our parent company, started focusing, Horizon started focusing on automotive applications. And when we looked at the global opportunity for those high-powered fuel cells, we saw the need to create a new business around the applications. So, so tell us about then, you know, especially for the people that are listening that maybe are not so technical or don't have the scientific background, you know, tell us about, you know, why you know, this, this is so important and why it's so unique, you know, this, this, this approach. Yeah, so I guess take a step back from that core technology, as you say, and think about the challenges that the world is currently faced with uh, and think about how hydrogen can contribute to address some of these challenges. At the moment, you know, the global population are all facing this very inevitable reality that if we don't change our habits, that the environment suffers irreversibly and then, you know, humankind suffer in, in turn. So we really need to decarbonize. We need to 
change our behaviours around around uh, energy systems and around mobility and the burning of fossil fuels. So fundamentally, we need to find solutions to our habits, our fossil fuel habits. And um, so, if we think about how to address one of the big chunks of uh, fossil fuel consumption, transport, if we think about how to address that, you kind of end up with a, a range, a spectrum of um, you know viable alternatives. So on the passenger vehicle, light vehicle, scooters and all this sort of thing, end of the spectrum, battery electrification is really the most practical means of eliminating fossil fuels. But if you think about the other end of that spectrum, which is very heavy equipment, very high daily uptime, for example, payload imperative type stuff, this sort of equipment, these types of daily usages, this is much more suitable to hydrogen because you could refuel these vehicles with hydrogen in a very similar fashion to the way you refuel them with diesel. So really what you're looking at is the, the, the different use cases for fossil fuels and looking for the most logical way to replace those fossil fuels or displace those fossil fuels. So what Heisel does is targets these really heavy-duty, high-daily use case types of scenarios like concrete trucks and garbage collection trucks and urban transit buses and refrigerated food delivery trucks and trucks that port drage trucks, trucks that just run so many hours a day, you really don't have the opportunity to charge if they were battery-based. And in fact, you don't want to charge something with such a big daily operating cycle requirement because it's a huge amount of electrical energy. And so you create a massive burden on the grid when you put those applications onto the grid as well. So what we what we pursue is is grid independent electrification. So we go after hydrogen produced from renewable sources, from waste products and the like that don't have a dependence on the grid infrastructure to charge the vehicles, recharge the vehicles, etc. So we go after grid independent, decarbonized, heavy vehicle power and fueling solutions. So in your in your guys' case, I mean, you were obviously all pushing horizon fuel cell technologies, and then this becomes a possibility, as you were alluding to, on, on the application, how you would also able to to apply it to the automobile you know sector. But tell us about how was that incubation process of the idea, and then all of a sudden it becomes a reality, and Hison is born. Great question around kind of how that happens, because you know. Frankly, the parent company Horizon was really a kind of technology developer, technology incubator, and not really a kind of mass commercialization, you know, capable company. So the way that Horizon got into automotive applications was really by being just a powertrain supplier, by being a fuel cell or a fully integrated fuel cell system supplier and working with vehicle companies, especially in China, where China initiated uh, a support mechanism around pollution abatement uh, solutions. So this is hydrogen-powered uh, trucks and hydrogen-powered buses in really high daily use, usage type scenarios where that switch from diesel to batteries had been challenging because of the really high daily uptimes. So, so the Chinese government a number of years ago now brought in some subsidy systems, some, some policies around converting some of these these challenging you know, heavy vehicle usage scenarios to hydrogen. And Horizon was a beneficiary of that because Horizon was able to sell to companies making the buses and the trucks 
So selling to companies like Utong, selling to companies like Dongfang and selling to other companies that make you know, a lot of these types of vehicles. So, so Horizon was a beneficiary of that and was able to demonstrate uh, this core technology that had been developed since 2003. They were able to demonstrate this in the vehicle applications and then being pretty successful in those applications um, as the management team at Horizon at the time where I was. You know, we started looking at the opportunity to globalize that experience. But in looking at the global market, the global you know, opportunity set, we realized that the, the rest of the world was not nearly as ready to go towards hydrogen electrification as China had been. And partly that was a legacy issue because China's been electrifying vehicle systems for decades. And over that time, they already electrified scooters and small cars and light council vehicles and light commercial vehicles. So these things were already running on batteries. They already had over 400, 450,000 full-size city buses on batteries at the time, for example, in China. But there were limitations to what you could do on batteries, and that's why the subsidy system and the support mechanisms came along for hydrogen. And then with the experience that Horizon gained there, we looked for the opportunity to globalize that, but realized the rest of the world was behind on electrifying generally, electrifying mobility generally, and therefore we had to be more creative about the models we used to be able to apply fuel cell technology to, for example, the the truck decarbonisation in Europe or the truck decarbonisation in the United States. We had to be a lot more creative and we found that the, the, the incumbent players were a lot more comfortable in those markets, were not in a real hurry to introduce hydrogen as a substitute to diesel or as an alternative to diesel. So that's why we became, you know, obsessed with this idea of going downstream into the vehicle applications and becoming a master vehicle integrator, if you want to call it that, whereby we can source the rolling stock, the kind of cab and chassis, and we can then fit that out with the whole electric propulsion system and the fuel cell system to make those trucks zero emission trucks, although they weren't originally designed to be zero emission trucks. And also, I mean, obviously, that's the moment where Hyson is born, but um, but the journey of Hyson, I mean, has been incredible. I mean, it's been like a lightning speed. I mean, literally, you guys founded or or, or built or or gave birth to to the idea of Hyson, you know, around 2020, you know, or yeah. something like that, or perhaps like around early 2020, even a little bit earlier, yeah. perhaps 2020. But then even now, I mean, you you're already like a publicly traded company, which is unbelievable, like so quickly. So so what? What were the early days like, and how did you guys think about to the, the the business model of the business in a way that you know would make sense and that would be and and you know obviously you know making it all the way to the public eye now you know as a publicly listed company I mean is remarkable. So so for the people that are listening to really get it, what is the business model of Hyson? How do you guys make money? Firstly, let's talk a little bit about the mission because it then plays to the business model. Great. Our whole mission is around decarbonizing commercial transport. So the execution paths are about accelerating the rate at which a fleet operator can choose to go zero emission. So we have to make it easy for a fleet operator, whether it's you know a public sector utility you know, or a, or a transit authority or an operator of port drage trucks or whatever it might be. Right. These fleet operators. You have to make it easy for them to make this choice. 
So fundamentally, what we need to do is we need to provide an alternative to what's familiar now, which is diesel trucks. We need to provide an alternative that's attractive in terms of operations and in terms of cost. So what we're focused on is leveraging our core technology, which is the fuel cell systems and how that works within a vehicle, so the electric propulsion along with the fuel cell. We, we optimize the way that these things work, but within the basis of, of a donor chassis, if you like, or a third-party cab chassis, right? So we work with the established uh, vehicle OEMs to source those cab chassis, and then we fit them out with the fuel cell and electric propulsion. So by doing this, it means we're relatively asset light. So we really specialize in the hydrogen system, the fuel cell, power generation system, and then the electric propulsion to make the vehicle operate. But the rest of the vehicle, someone else can build. And, and that keeps us as a relatively asset-like manufacturer because making fuel cells is not the big heavy investment like making cabs and chassis and all those heavy steel components, right? So the model is to be a master integrator, leveraging the core technology in the fuel cell and electric powertrain to make it easy for these guys to choose to go to zero emission. So there's two major elements to the cost structures in commercial vehicles. One is obviously the CapEx, and the second is the OPEX. The major OPEX component is fuel. Fuel's a very big chunk of the total cost of ownership for commercial vehicles. So we have to play an active part in helping our customers access affordable hydrogen. So there's two big jobs we have to do. One is design and make and supply a reliable, high-performance vehicle that can operate more like a diesel vehicle so that routes can be the same, you know, driver hours can be the same, refill time can be the same or similar to diesel. And the second thing we have to provide is access to affordable hydrogen if they don't already have it. So our focus is around enabling those easy choices for fleet operators. So in this case, you know, how, how did you guys think about as well about capitalizing the business? So we had three choices, um, the usual choices. One was, you know, looking for private placement capital enough to, enough to kind of scale this business um, because what we had was the core technology, but it was embedded within this private company, Horizon, which just doesn't have a massive pool of capital to go and pursue, you know, new initiatives. If you're a Honeywell or a General Electric or something, you just throw capital at, at a concept and a set of technologies. You can go create a new business, right, global business. We couldn't do that. So we had to either choose to go private, you know, raise uh, or an IPA, IPO or a SPAC route. And when we looked at the three options, we said, okay, we, we definitely have enough friends and people who like the look of what we're doing to raise some money with a private placement, um, you know, which is what we did in the beginning. That was, you know, we started that process early 2020. That was a good way to raise a little bit of money and validate our concept and refine the concept with the input of some of these people that came in at the A round. Uh, and then we fairly quickly went into a more substantial capital raise uh, process because we realized that the timing was really kind of ripe for what we were doing. And we also should execute quickly to make sure we didn't lose the momentum uh, in the market, in the business concept. And in what we'd started to validate commercially. 
um, some customers had already started to come on board with um, with serious expressions of interest around vehicles. You know, we'd started to negotiate some agreements here and there. So we chose to go after source of capital pretty quickly, um, and we went out to start that process of marketing ourselves essentially um, to potential investors in the form of SPACs. Got it. So then the SPACs, I mean, there are so many people talking about SPACs. It's like the, 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 the new kid on the block. Now they've mm. become so popular in the last, you know, 12 to 24 months. So there's probably a lot of people that are, you know, tuning in now and, and listening and, and, oh my God, SPACs, you know, I've heard it left and right. I mean, what, what, what does it look like? I mean, what is the experience of, of going through a SPAC and, and now all of a sudden you are like a publicly listed company? So, I mean, really going through an IPO or, or going through a SPAC process have the same end goal, obviously, uh, and the same outcome of becoming a publicly listed company with, with hopefully enough capital on your balance sheet. You can go and execute to plan and hopefully with the amount of dilution that you planned on when you start the process. But for us, the, the environment last year was such that there were so many SPACs out there, so many sponsors of SPACs looking for attractive investments that we thought we had a pretty decent shot at finding someone you know, that could be an interesting partner. And because we'd been so long in this basic technology of fuel cells, we thought we had something to offer that was a little different to a lot of people. So there were a lot of new concepts coming out of garages and universities and and um, spare bedrooms, you know, as business models and all this sort of stuff here in the last couple of years. But how many really seasoned um, entrepreneurs that had built a technology-based business were out there looking for merger partners? There aren't, there aren't that many, and there weren't that many uh, last year. So we thought we would have a decent shot at finding, a, you know, a, a suitable back partner. And the second thing is that when you that we were at the very early stage of increasing focus on ESG-oriented investment. So we felt because of our whole mission in life, which is to make fuel cell technology relevant and to use it for, for good, for a positive you know, purpose, um, namely decarbonizing commercial transport in the, in the case of ISOM, we felt like we could appeal to an investor set that would give us a decent chance of striking a deal, getting a decent valuation and all the rest of it. So we went through this process of uh, interviewing and, and our, our advising bank was Goldman Sachs. And we went through the process of you know, interviewing. It kind of, it's kind of like a mutual interview with a bunch of SPAC uh, sponsors. And we, you know, we would have spoken to more than 30 of them. Um, and you kind of feel each other out a bit, you kind of get a sense of fit, or, you know, their kind of, Purpose and mandate versus versus you know our kind of direction and our base and our vi our vision on the business and all the rest of it and you just look for that fit and so you end up with a you know short list of of parties that look feel like they can work together you go through a usual kind of term sheet dance and negotiation and you you hopefully come out with a deal at the end um, nice. now our process to close was a little uh, lengthy because. Um, the SEC changed some rules around warrant reporting and all that sort of stuff for SPACs, but that was an industry effect. Um, so we ended up finalizing our transaction in the latter part of July, um, just a few months ago. Got it. And and I believe that, I mean, I was just looking now, you know, at some of the, because now all, all is public, all the information is public. So what is, what is the is. market cap today of Hyson? 
So we've been a little bit beaten down by uh, by some short sellers. So we're around about one and a half billion last time I looked. I think we've replied to, I mean, the, the reasonably informed, although still poorly, poorly informed report that was issued a little while ago. We responded with a formal statement. There was another attempt to, you know, to discredit us shortly after that, but it was really not really worthy of any response. Um, it was so, um, you know, spurious. Um, so, you know, what we're doing is we're responding simply by continuing to execute to plan. Hyzen has been pretty busy in different corners of the world with validating customer interest and going through this process of, of, of validating our offering compared to what customers want and so on and signing up customers in you know Australia and New Zealand we've announced customers um you know we've announced uh, a an MOU leading towards firm orders in China we've announced orders in Europe um and you know at the moment we're working on a pipeline of opportunities in North America i mean we're just continuing to try and execute to plan obviously everyone's facing various supply chain challenges whatever but that that's that is what it is you deal with that in the context of um you know making your choices and 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 taking actions in your in your daily business operations so at the moment we're sitting on a one and a half billion dollar market cap but most importantly for us uh is that we have you know around about 500 million dollars uh in the bank accounts and we will use this very cautiously um, you know, we've always been very, very careful stewards of, of our own money and our shareholders' money. And Hyzon management, you know, has DNA to, to very carefully uh, allocate capital and to invest in ways that, that bring a return to our shareholders. And, and this is, you know, this is a, a habit that was formed a long time ago in, in lean times, work, you know, making our way through those mean streets we talked about earlier. Um, these habits are hard-won habits, but you don't let go. Um, so we're very cautious stewards of capital, and you know we will we will um, carefully allocate funds to the right areas where we develop technology and build our capacity, and build and develop the teams so that we can execute the global Hyzon model. So in that regard, you know, as as we're looking ahead and and into the future. Imagine you were going to sleep tonight and you wake up, imagine, tremendous news. You wake up in a world five years later where the vision of Heisen is fully realized. What does that world look like? To me, that would say five years from now, to me, the success would look like shipments of somewhere around fifteen to 20,000 commercial vehicles over the years. Um, successful facilitation and, and support and sponsorship of the build out of hydrogen infrastructure in a very locally oriented fashion because we're all about sustainability. So we love local hydrogen production bases close to demand centers for the hydrogen, which are built up on the back of fleet operations. So for us, going after back to base type trucking hubs like the concrete trucks and the refuse trucks and the port drage and whatever, we like local hydrogen production bases close by to those demand centers because this is all about sustainability and there's nothing more sustainable and, and secure than local supply of energy. So hydrogen has a great opportunity to improve energy resilience and energy independence right down to a very local level uh, in every corner of the world. And we're 
you know, very much proponents of that. So success to us would look like local hydrogen hubs and hydrogen ecosystems popping up in different parts of the world that are fundamentally sustainable through economics and sustainable in, you know, in real terms in terms of consumption. And we, we're also very proud to say that fuel cell technology is inherently sustainable because it's a cradle-to-cradle technology. If a fuel cell is wearing out and starting to lose efficiency, we simply take it, tear it down, rebuild it with fresh membranes, and then we recover the catalyst and put that into another fuel cell later, right? So, so fuel cells are inherently sustainable. They're cradle-to-cradle. So they, you know, they really don't consume a lot of resources. We just keep reusing the precious platinum that's in those fuel cells. So uh, every fuel cell uh, is kind of like um, is kind of like a storage bank for platinum that can be used again and again. So, so imagine now that I put you into a time machine, and let's say I'm able to bring you back in time, you know, to that moment where you were and the team thinking about the idea of bringing Hyson to life, right? And especially based on everything that you've learned and, you know, everything that has happened, you know, now you guys are a publicly listed company. So if you were able to go back and, and give yourself one piece of advice, you know, based on what you know now to that younger, you know, Craig, you know, when, when Hyson was about to see the light of the day, you know, and, and being born, what would you tell that younger Craig? You know, what would be that piece of advice? You know, based on on what you've learned now, that uh, that you make sure that that younger Craig listens to. Okay, so um, at different part, points along this journey, I would have pointed back and said we should have been more opportunistic um, and been a little less obsessed with kind of like um, big picture, long term thinking. Um, but it kind of it's just our nature to be a bit more big picture and long term thinking. Um, but now, now I, I don't know that the opportunistic kind of approach would have been so um, very successful or very different to where we are. We ended up merging with a with a uh, a SPAC that we feel is just such a great fit for us, and the people involved uh, are such great people that we're we're very happy where we are. So we merged with a with a SPAC that had been sponsored by Riverstone, and and it was called Decarbonisation Plus Acquisition Corp. Uh, DCRB, um, and this was an energy sector play, but with a mandate around decarbonisation, obviously, energy transition. So these were people with very with a lot of background in the energy sector that were looking at the long term trends around the energy transition. We're forming all kinds of theses around some of the scarce materials, forming all kinds of theses around electrification. We're forming a view around hydrogen, and and. We just found a great fit in in uh, exploring the potential for our business in the context of what they had raised as their investment capital. Now, fundamentally, a SPAC is a bag of cash to an entrepreneur. However, as in everything, as in life, as in business dealings, who you're dealing with is very important. So, you know, when you look at Hyzon and how it transforms pre and post SPAC, it's kind of it's working capital. It's a bag of cash on the balance sheet. But there's a lot more to it than that, I think. And we've been, you know, super excited to work with the Riverstone guys because they've been just so constructive. And for us, um, I don't know that I would change a whole lot. I, I think one thing we would do is that 
we would have had a greater sense of urgency around that process of identifying, filtering, shortlisting, and negotiating uh, with SPACs because it was all new to us, uh, like it is to most people that embark on this kind of journey. And we kind of were learning as we were going and we were willing to feel our way along. Um, I think we could have probably been a bit more aggressive there and shortened the timeline by six months overall. Um, but frankly, I can't see that that there's a whole lot of difference sitting where we are now and you know, where we might have been if we did things slightly differently. Um, definitely, we've learned a lot. Um, I'm not suggesting um, we haven't learned. Um, but even with those learnings in mind, I'd be able to execute much faster now if I did the same thing again. But you know, you can't do that. You can't. You can't take the learnings that we've gone through and wind yourself back in time the way you suggested with the time machine. We, you know, we have to accept the fact that that was the first time we'd ever done it, and we were learning as we went. Um, so a little bit more orientation around urgency may have changed things slightly. Uh, but I really don't know if the more opportunistic approach would have been that much better. Got it. So, Craig, so for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? I mean, you can come to our website. I think you can reach me pretty much by hitting the inquiry email. It goes, I think it'll go through, you know, somebody that'll handle it. But um, we're always interested in making contact with people with an interest in decarbonizing transport and in the hydrogen sector in general. Um, you know, hopefully we've shared a little of our journey. It's been useful to people. It's certainly an interesting activity to go and try and raise hundreds of millions of dollars uh, for a business concept. Uh, and you know, um, lots of lessons along the way. Amazing. Well, Craig, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. My pleasure, Alejandro. Thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.